Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming early uh, to be here to talk about the incredible artist at the center of tonight's program, Duke Ellington. And um, before I launch into uh, Duke's early childhood and some specifics about the program, we have just a few minutes here to chat with tonight's, uh, tonight's guest conductor. And so I want to welcome to the stage, he's already here, so it's kind of awkward at this point, uh, Thomas Wilkins, principal conductor of the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra, a regular guest here, artistic advisor of the Boston Symphony, among others. And um, my first question, maestro, uh, is that we have not seen each other since the summer of 1994 at Shenandoah University Performing Arts Camp in Winchester, Virginia, when I played timpani in your orchestra. And so my question is, do you remember me? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Holy Thank you. That's what I was looking for. That's exactly the recognition I was looking wow. for. Wow. And you, you kept that from me this entire time. I did. I did. Well, I did. We look, to, we look exactly the same. You know, I'm, I, 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 uh, it's great to see you again. It's great to see you again. Um, they don't care about any of that, though. What no. they do care about is Duke Ellington. And um, as we were just talking, tonight's program celebrates the symphonic Duke Ellington and his foray into presenting music in, uh, in the symphony orchestra realm. And we have four pieces on the program tonight. Two of them are his earliest works from his first year writing for the symphony orchestra. That's Black, Brown, and Beige, which was premiered in January of 1943 at Carnegie Hall. New World Common, which was present, premiered in December 1943 at the other end of the year, also in Carnegie Hall. Night Creatures, which was premiered in 1956, also in Carnegie Hall and uh, the Ballet Suite from the River, which premiered at 1970 at the New York City Ballet, which was at Lincoln Center. It's almost Carnegie Hall. It's right up this Right. Way. So can you tell us about uh, Duke's development as a symphonist, as a composer in the orchestral realm during You know, uh, that first uh, Black, Brown, and Beige, as many of you have probably read, uh, the original was 45 minutes long. And uh, he, was just, he was just a writing fiend. Uh, at the time, I mean, he had, he, had, he had always said that, you know, the orchestra was like his toy almost, and his band was like his Stradivarius. I just I read in the, in the program notes uh, earlier, but uh, um, yeah, he just he he just loved writing, but he would write uh, sometimes in little sections, and then try it out with his band, and then you know, take it back to the orchestra, and he had some help some orchestrational help uh, as well. I think Ron Collier was, was stepped in there and Perez, uh, Maurice Perez, mm -hmm. I think is, his, is Maurice's first, is his first name. Um, he was serious. Um, and this point came up in a conversation earlier about uh, the fact that now finally, especially with the launch of this weekend, I think this repertoire is finding its way back into the canon. And it is, it is taken as seriously as Tchaikovsky and Mozart and Beethoven, because that's the way Duke Ellington took it. I mean, he said that there was only two kinds of music, good music and the other kind, is <laughs> what he said. So yeah, he was, uh, he was full on in love with the orchestra and in love with the process of writing and creating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, New World of Coming, in particular, his piano concerto, which he played many times throughout his life, and other soloists have played. Of course, we have a different soloist playing it here this weekend. Right. Um, but you mentioned uh, Tchaikovsky, and then you mentioned Beethoven, and I wonder if you might muse on a bit about 
Duke Ellington uh, in the pantheon of composer performers like Beethoven, like Mozart, mm. like Bach, who sat down and played music, and particularly Mozart and Beethoven, who you know sort of half improvised as yeah. they played their own pieces that were also written down. Right. Uh, in fact, when Beethoven premiered his Fifth Symphony, he also premiered the Sixth Symphony on that same night, and also. Uh, the thing for piano and chorus, which his name is... Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Choral Fantasy. Choral Fantasy, yeah. thank you. And uh, he improvised on that concert. Did he? Um, so, I mean, it was a long night. It was a cold night because they, the heating system in the building broke down. But no, he... There were plenty of composers, like especially... Bach, and Bach sort of really has his fingerprint on everybody who came after him, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really believe. Um, so, yes, Duke Ellington is... is He's, he falls into that category of composers who, you know, there's a, there's a little thing in Giggling Rapids, for example, that now we have uh, newly engraved parts because people are, are understanding this is important. And the new engraved parts that we had left out a little piano wiggle at the mm -hmm. end of Giggling Rapids. And because, because in the score, it was just chicken scratch across three mm. or four bars. And I said to our librarian, I put it back in, and I said, I'll bet you anything that Duke just did that one night. And somebody went, okay, here's, no, didn't put notes, but this, here, mm. Duke did this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there it is. That's how it works. That's how it's it works. gospel now. That, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about more of that later when you're gone. Okay. Not because I don't want to say it in front of you. But one more question. I know I said I only want to do one, but... Duke and his relationship with his soloists. He was also really putting his soloists out front and center. And in particular, I'm thinking of Johnny Hodges and Mahalia Jackson, but I wonder you may have some other names you want to throw uh, in there. Uh, no, no, nobody pops into my head, but uh, this was a smart thing because he hired extraordinary musicians for his band. Mm. Um, and that, that, that's obviously a smart thing to do, but so, so they, were all, they were all number one prime solo artist, and that's one of the reasons why that band was so good. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and they were part of his compositional process as well, right. because he was bouncing ideas off of them. Exactly, and you know, this, this is not uncommon. Um, you know, like Mozart would get to a town, and there were good clarinet players in the town, so all of a sudden, this symphony would have clarinets, and the one that he wrote just before it didn't have clarinets, <laughs> so you would know, why, 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 why this, you know, or he was going to Paris, or he threw a little French wiggle in, the, in, in his Paris symphony because he knew the Parisians would hear it and, and, and sort of and dig it, so right. um, that's, that's, a, that's a great way to make music, is to bounce ideas off of each other, and, you know, when he wrote, for example, the River Suite, what did he do? He'd listen to Peter Grimes and he'd listen to uh, La Mer and he wanted to see how other people treated music, uh, 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 water music. Mm. Uh, and all of that stuff sort of in, informed his own writing. And right. that's, that's how we all grow as artists. Right, and found it way in at some. There's a, there's a La Mer quote in there, at least one. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time with us. Uh, sure. Have fun conducting the concert. Toy, toy, toy. We're thank you. I'm going to go powder later. my nose. <laughs> Thanks. such a special treat that we're able to get the maestro to come out and spend some time with us before the concert tonight. And uh, in my haste, I failed to properly introduce myself. So um, uh, first, again, thank you for being here. Thank you for still being here after the maestro left. My name is Pat Posey. I am uh, a saxophonist and uh, a composer and an administrator 
and I am on the faculty at the USC Thornton School of Music. Uh, I perform with a lot of different orchestras and things around. I was performed here last week. Uh, and I used to be, uh, in a previous career, the uh, Vice President of Artistic and Education at the Music Academy of the West in Santa Barbara. And I am really excited to be giving my first uh, pre-concert talks here at the LA Phil um, about Duke Ellington. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Um, Duke was born in 1899 in Washington, D.C., died in 1974 in New York. He lived in Washington for the first 24 years of his life. His mother, Daisy Ellington, born in 1879 to a middle-class family. She had completed high school. Her father was a policeman. It was a rare and coveted job for a black man at the time. Her mo his mother showered him with love, praise, and encouragement through his early life. Uh, from his memoirs, he said, I was pampered and pampered and spoiled rotten by all in the family. This gave him a feeling of confidence, a feeling of being favored, that he held with him through the rest of his life. Um, he adored his mother and constantly, constantly seeked her approval for his entire life while she was still with him. His father, James Edward Ellington, J.E., was born in the same year, 1879, in Lincolnton, North Carolina. J.E. did not complete the eighth grade and, like many Southern blacks at the time, migrated north, hoping to find a better life. When he got to D.C., he held a number of jobs, including driver, butler, and caterer for a prominent physician, and sometimes would work parties at the White House. He would bring home fine food from those catering jobs to his family and to young Edward, who would later recall that he raised his family as though they were millionaires. Growing up in that time in D.C., the family lived in 14 different locations in Northwest Washington, which was more of an upper-class black neighborhood as opposed to the Southwest D.C., which was more of a working-class neighborhood. J.E. taught his son good manners that he learned from being in all of these society places, um, including how to choose the proper knife, the proper fork, the proper spoon, and of course, how to dress. J.E. was regarded by his son as a great ballroom dancer, wine connoisseur, always the life of the party, and knew exactly what to say to impress women. Gee, you make that hat look pretty was one of his lines, which Duke Ellington later used as a title of a song in 1968. And as he got older, Duke picked up and carried on that kind of flattery through the rest of his life. Um, Daisy and J.E. had different temperaments. Daisy was very moral, very stiff-lipped, very prim. J.E. was easygoing and fun-loving. Like I said, the life of the party, nothing really troubled him. Daisy had more education, came from a higher social class. They went to different churches, but they had a warm relationship together and warm relationship with their family. Both of them played the piano. J.E. would play opera arias by ear. Daisy would play parlor songs, popular songs, and uh, etc. reading from sheet music. One of Duke's earliest memories was hearing his mother play the rosary so beautifully that he burst out crying, learning early on the power of music to touch the spirit of the listener. Daisy started him with formal music training around age seven or eight at Garnet Elementary. He had a teacher named Miss Clink Scales, believe it or not. He was more interested in playing baseball at the time, which he did in the Sandlot, and with the other boys would frequently see uh, Teddy Roosevelt ride by on his 
course, then he would wave at the boys, and the boys would wave at him. Young Edward got a job selling peanuts and popcorn at the Washington Nationals ballpark um, and said that that was the first time that he felt stage fright, but he had to get over it in order to keep the job because he loved baseball. He loved going to them. He also liked putting on a show, and at young age, family gatherings would dance around, tell jokes, and play the jaw harp. Now, during this time, Washington, D.C. was the center of American black civilization due to the population, the socioeconomic structure, and the educational and cultural opportunities that were available. For instance, it was a leader in education with Howard University just down, uh, uh, just down the road, established in 1867. And in 1900, Washington, D.C. had the largest black population of any American city and the highest proportion of its population at 31%. Uh, segregation had blacks living separately from the whites, but in those neighborhoods, they existed their own communities, their own churches, and their own cultural scenes. And it is in this rich cultural scene that Duke Ellington was raised and found his voice as an artist and as a show person. Around 10, he started sneaking into the local burlesque shows, where he started seeing lots of observations about show business techniques, the great craftsmanship involved, and on uh, the beautiful women that he was seeing there as well. He was always looking for lessons in life. And everything he did, he tried to learn something from. Around 14, he started sneaking into a pool room, which was a little less savory, seven blocks away from his home. It was next to a popular theater, and so it had a very electric crowd, eclectic crowd, excuse me, demonstrating to him how all the levels could and should mix. He had waiters, porters, students, pianists, doctors, all came through there, and Ellington learned to appreciate the value in mixing with a wide range of people. Notably, he befriended a number of railroad porters who would give him stories of travels to New York, Detroit, Chicago, and other cities, which whet his appetite for travel. As a child, he showed talent in several arts and pursued visual arts for a while. As he moved into high school, he could have gone to M Street High School, which is now Dunbar High, an academically-minded school founded in 1870 as the nation's first public high school for blacks. Instead, he went to nearby and kind of rough Armstrong Manual Training School to study commercial art. But still, music was around. And I should stop now to say that music people's relationship to music at this time was much different than it is now. We had no widespread recording. The recordings that did exist were of very low quality because it was before the electronic microphone. Everything was played into a cone and scratched onto a wax cylinder, and I know you all have that sound in your head. Um, all music that people heard had to be performed live, uh, which meant at home, in a church, or any other number of public places and or businesses that employed musicians. Um, radio, talkies, TVs, all of this was in the future. Jazz was not yet known. Blues, virtually unheard of outside of the black community, and within it, it was shunned by the middle class. But piano sales were booming. 1909, piano sales hit an all-time high in the U.S. Everybody had a piano. It was a sign of middle-class respectability, whether you were black or white. And every home had a piano player. It was the only way, well, it was one of the ways, the proper way to entertain guests, particularly on, on Sundays, when you would have lots of guests in your home. 
The uprights at the time were very large, not the little spinet pianos we know, but they were big clonkers. And the Ellington family had two, one in the living room, one in the dining room. Edward would practice on both. And around that time, what started happening on the music scene was ragtime, developed from musicians in the black community. Young musicians flocked to it, both black and white, and as the music of young people through all times has always been, ragtime had less than savory connotations attached to it, but the piano made it a little more respectable. Ragtime inspired friendly competition between players, gave musicians challenges in rhythm and technique, and around 15, Ellington was going out to listen to ragtime pianists in D.C. and on vacation in Philadelphia and Atlantic City. In Asbury Park, he met Harvey Brooks, who showed him some tricks and shortcuts. These are Duke's words. He was swinging, and he had a tremendous left hand. And when I got home, I had a real yearning to play. I haven't been able to get off the ground before, but after hearing him, after hearing him I said to myself, man, you're just going to have to do it. This meant learning how to play by listening, watching, and imitating. He learned how to play by ear. He said he used to go to rent parties and hear popular pianists really play the piano, but they would hit so many keys that I couldn't begin to play the tunes they played, which speaks to his singular note style that we'll get to a little later. Lots of great pianists around D.C., and he kept listening to them, trying to reproduce everything they were doing. Those ragtime pianists sounded so good to me, and they looked so good, particularly when they flashed their left hand. He had a left hand thing. He keeps talking about the left hand. Piano was well-suited to provide music for social dancing, and around this time, dancing became more of an acceptable social opportunity. Um, in summer 1913, he took a job as a soda jerk at the Poodle Dog Cafe on Georgia Avenue. Now, soda jerk, I had to look this up. Does anybody know what a soda jerk is? Okay, I, I don't know what a soda jerk is. I do now. I looked it up. Soda jerk is a play on soda clerk. It was the clerk at the soda fountain who uh, poured the soda and mixed the soda, right? And this, the jerk was a play because he had to jerk the handles to do it. And so he was a soda jerk. And at the Poodle Dog Cafe, they had a piano player who was great when he was sober. But when he wasn't sober, the owner would tell Ellington got to be a point where he could play the piano so well. The owner, when the, the pianist got too drunk, the owner would pull him off, jump behind the bar and do the soda jerkin himself and put Duke Ellington up on the stage to play. And so then he had to play something and he was learning everything by ear trying to do it. So he came up with his own tune that became his first piece that he composed called the Soda Fountain Rag. He took fragments of the tunes that he had heard and then he added them to it rhythms that he got from soda jerking. From, from the motions he made to jerk the sodas. So he would later in life tell people he couldn't remember how it went, but he did play it from time to time, uh, or parts of it. And there's one example here I want to play for you. This is Duke Ellington in 1972 at a solo concert at the Whitney Museum, and it's got a little bit of his voice talking about the piece as well. So it'll take about one minute. I should like very much now to go back and show you uh, probably the first thing I ever played when I found out that nobody couldn't teach me anything, I had to find something of my own. And I came up with this thing called the Soda Fountain Rag. And uh, uh, I can't play it, but I'll show you how to suppose it was started like this. <laughs>
to be careful not to get into the part where, you know. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it's the left hand gets, uh, you know, things ain't what they used to be. You know? Things ain't what they used to be. That was Duke Ellington at age 73 playing a piece that he wrote when he was 15, as much of it as he could remember anyway. Um, it was around this time, he was about 15, when his friend Edgar McContre noticed his polite manners, his fashionable clothes, and his aristocratic bearing and gave him the nickname Duke, which stuck with him through the rest of his life. McContre pushed the Duke, the freshman Duke, into playing a number for the seniors' dance, and he became a hit. From then on, he was in demand as a pianist at dances and parties. Noticing that there was always a pretty girl standing down at the bass clef end of the piano near the left hand, and deciding he ain't been no athlete ever since. The more he played, the more music he needed, but he knew very few tunes, so he took that soda fountain rag and he changed the beat and tempo, playing it as a one-step, a two-step, a foxtrot, a tango, a waltz, and all of a sudden people thought he had repertoire. And that's how he developed his tunes. His tunes started playing around in D.C., getting the notice of other pianists who had bands and subbing in for them. He had some early successes and some early crash and burns. He got fired once, he got yelled at for playing, showing up at a gig at the British Embassy in D.C. wearing a bright plaid suit instead of evening wear. And then he got fired from a band for embellishing the melody too much rather than playing the music that was on the page. But of course, uh, that was because he was, a, he was a star in the making. And around age 23, he moved with a couple of friends to New York and started playing with his band there. And over the next 20 years or so, developed an international career as one of the most important band leaders, pianists, composers of the jazz era. Um, and the way that he did it, and I think Tom alluded to this a little bit earlier, was by finding the best musicians, the best individual soloists, and bringing them on board and working with them. And his group started with just a trio and then became a quartet and a quintet and a sextet, and then he just added and added until he had the Duke Ellington Orchestra right, the big band that we, that we know today. So um, the big band, of course, in the swing era and through that era became known to be as the, the large ensemble of jazz, and that's what Duke Ellington had in his. At this point, I want to make a note that his big band was called the Duke Ellington Orchestra, and that is not to be confused with lowercase O orchestra referring to a symphony. So I'm going to try to talk about the big band, the Ellington Orchestra, and then the symphony orchestra as separate things. But if it gets confusing, I'm sorry. That's why. Um, so when we look to the symphonic Ellington, um, well, before we look to the symphonic Ellington, through these different residencies they were playing, they were touring, they were jumping around all over the place, and by the early 1940s, he had turned over some personnel in his orchestra, he had fights with publishers, the musicians' union, broadcast recorders, there was so much money in his music that he was just really running himself ragged, and so he did what every East Coaster does when they get tired. He moved to L.A., he came to Hollywood, right? 1941. And his orchestra had a long engagement here playing the show Jump for Joy before touring through much of 1942 until the fall. In the fall of 42, he returned to Hollywood to work on two films, 
and prepared for a grand return to New York, his first Carnegie concert in January 1943. And this is the beginning of the symphonic Ellington era. This was a major milestone playing Carnegie Hall for any musician, but especially for a black performer, and especially for a black performer who is headlining Carnegie Hall. He wasn't the first person to do that, but it was still uh, a notable event nonetheless. Um, everybody turned out. Eleanor Roosevelt attended the concert, came up from D.C. during the war, mind you. Frank Sinatra jumped across from the Paramount Theater where he had a show during a break to greet Ellington backstage and wish him luck for his own show. And Duke Ellington had composed a few special works for this occasion, well, one big work for this occasion. Um, and when we talk about his orchestral works, his symphonic works, there is a challenge in his process because many of them existed in many forms. For instance, his second Carnegie concert, New World to Come in the Piano Concerto, was, was written by him for him soloing with his orchestra, the big band. Ten years later, uh, an orchestral arrangement was made uh, to be performed at Philadelphia with the Philadelphia Orchestra at Robin Hood Dell, an outdoor summer festival, which was the first appearance at an outdoor summer festival, but those, those venues became very important for him over the next few years. His next major work, Harlem, which we're not performing here, was written following a conversation on a transatlantic ship with Arturo Toscanini, in 1950, and conceived from day one as existing in two parallel versions, one for the Ellington Orchestra and one for them plus a symphony orchestra. The sketches have indications not in Ellington's hand for orchestral instruments such as timpani, so he worked with orchestrators who helped to flesh out the work. Um, Night Creature was conceived as a concerto grosso for big band and symphony, but he performed it at times without the band, only as rhythm section and sometimes with a symphony. This points to his savviness as a businessman. He'll adapt to need it to make it work. You want to put my music on? You want to pay me money? I'll do whatever you need. Here we go. Um, he didn't need strings to get to Carnegie Hall or the Met, he said, and he rarely wrote with symphonic music without the assistance of a arranger. There are works that he conceived for the medium and works which he have been adapted since, but from 1949 on, his music played by his band or with his band with symphony or by him with his rhythm section in symphony or by symphony alone increasingly appeared on symphonic pops concerts at major venues such as Robin Hood, Dell, Tanglewood, and the Hollywood Bowl, alongside music of Gershwin, Rodgers, and Hammerstein and others. And while jazz purists ignored or dismissed these performances, they became a regular element of his schedule and major source of income for the rest of his life and introduced his music to listeners who might never have entered a jazz club, which is funny because now we put on jazz in a concert hall and talk about it bringing in people who have maybe never been to the symphonic hall, but at that time it was about bringing people into jazz. And while he was looking for music, for opportunities to present his music in concert halls, he never really seeked them out. Going back to the 1920s when symphonic jazz, jazz was a happening thing, think George Gershwin, George Antile, Ferdy Grofay, he wasn't doing this. He waited until he was in his 50s to start performing his music with a symphony. And then even then, he didn't adapt his orchestra or process. He brought in collaborators to help him make everything work for the symphony. He would work in the same way he composed for his own orchestra, writing a small score at the piano, giving it to Henderson to orchestrate, Previous forays by composers into symphonic jazz focused on the binary between classical and jazz, turning it into sort of a cutting contest. But when he composed 
He wrote for specific performers in his orchestra. In his sketches, he often identified performers by name. And his scores and parts were never published. He kept them all in-house. But when he started writing for orchestras, of course, they had to go out and have a life of their own. So it really changed for him. And now, uh, with that, I want to start talking about the music on the program tonight. And if you'll indulge me, I like to think chronolo chronologically. And so we're going to go a little out of order from how it's being performed today. But I'm going to start by talking about black, brown, and beige. Sweet, which we're performing tonight. Um, this is a piece, Black, Brown, and Beige, written for his first Carnegie concert, January 1943. And he wrote it for his own orchestra, all of his notable soloists, and had the conductor Maurice Perez working with him in the 1970s to make an orchestral version. The larger suite, uh, or the larger piece that was premiered in 1943, as Tom said, is 45 minutes long. It's in three parts, black, brown, and beige. Each of those three parts is in three parts still. The suite that we hear now tonight is the three parts of the first movement of that part, black. But they're called black, brown, and beige. I haven't reconciled that yet in my head. But the, the three parts uh, that we're hearing tonight are coming from that. Um, The first performance of Black, Brown, and Beige in 1943 was received poorly by critics of both jazz and classical realms who didn't know how to categorize it, which made it dis difficult to, compose, to continue performing, and partly that is why he then adapted for orchestra later on. But to get to the suite, um, the suite that was created by Perez, collaborating with Ellington, opens with the opening number, A Work Song which features call and response between different sections of the orchestra. It opens with drums, evoking African drumming, which recurs throughout the piece, and gives way to a bold brass opening theme. This sets up a string theme evocative of George Gershwin's An American in Paris, uh, and to me, imagining a bustling metropolis of black life in Harlem. This sets, after some written out solos for saxophone and others, the woodwind choir takes a stroll, a similar melody for a string, for a, a soli stroll, shouldn't have written that, which builds to a brass soli that breaks down into a lengthy wah-wah trombone solo. That moves us into the second movement, Come Sunday, which a worship song, 
And this piece, of course, was later reworked to be sung by Mahalia Jackson, which won a Grammy and became a jazz standard. Ellington once told Maurice Perez, this is about black people standing around a church they could not enter, harmonizing with the beautiful music they heard from within, realizing that they all shared the same God. In the orchestral version, he gave the melody to the saxophonist Johnny Hodges. That movement also features a violin solo that was originally played by Ray Nance, who was a violinist and also lead trumpet player in the Ellington Orchestra. The third movement, Light, the original ending was somewhat abrupt because, of course, it went on to six more parts. Perez, when making this the last movement of the suite, brought this to Ellington's attention, who said that he agreed, and he said, go ahead and write another big one. And Perez said, well, I, don't, I can't do that. You've got to do that. And Ellington said, why don't you just use Come Sunday? And so then Perez brought it back to him with this change, and Ellington said, that's great, do, go back and do more of it. And so it ends with Come Sunday coming back. Um, another Carnegie concert was on the horizon. That was in January, and then in December of 1943, he came back for his second Carnegie Hall concert, and on this he presented his piano concerto, New World A-Comin'. Um, while expanding traditional jazz forms, he's also aiming with his music to tell the story of black America. And the title comes from a book of the same name by black journalist and author Roy Otley, who documented the lives of members of the Harlem community during the 20s and 30s, as well as their hopes for future. The book, coming out at the height of World War II, also laid out a case that black Americans were being asked to fight racism abroad in the name of patriotism while suffering from violent indignities of domestic racism at home and went further to suggest or actually demand specific changes for a post-war American society based on justice and equality for all. Ellington envisioned a new world in the distant future without world, without greed, without people being divided into groups in which there were no non-believers, where love was unconditional, where no pronoun was good enough for God. Um, the soloist worked from lead sheets from listening to Ellen, Ellington play. He played the premiere, but he didn't perform. He, he had other soloists, including Don Shirley, who continued to perform it. And even today in the version we hear, some of it is written out and some of it is improvised. Um, the New York Times lauded the other works on the program, but called this one a little bit pretentious. But that's funny because it turned out to be one of the most popular pieces to come out of that program and still today. Um, like many of his works, the first move, motive seems to evoke the title of the piece, New World A-Comin'. that comes back through a lot of his compositions over time. 
Through the piece, we alternate between statements of that theme by the orchestra and pensive piano soliloquies, each getting a little more varied and restless than the previous, including solo movements in the orchestra, which build to a frenzied and uncharacteristically, in this piece anyway, so far, high-energy ragtime piano solo, which is not echoed by the orchestra, seems to be Ellington looking backwards in time. I'm sorry that I've talked over my allotted time. It's now 7.38, so I'll go for a couple more minutes until somebody back there waves at me and tells me that I have to stop. Um, first piece tonight on the program, Night Creature, written in 1956 for his nth Carnegie concert. I don't know which number it was by then. I know he did a number of them over his life, but so this was 13 years after his first performance at Carnegie Hall. He's a veteran by now. This was commissioned by Don Gillis in the Symphony of the Air. Symphony of the Air was the, the successor of the NBC Symphony, which was dissolved when Toscanini retired. Don Gillis was an apprentice of, of Toscanini's and organized the musicians to continue working. And they commissioned this piece, a concerto grosso with the jazz band as soloist in the symphony orchestra. It became a staple of Alvin Alley American Dance Theater repertoire. Uh, after being choreographed, and Alvin Alley will come back in our next piece, The River. Um, incidentally, that dance troupe is playing across the street in a couple of weeks. I just saw a sign outside. Duke aimed to make the symphony swing with this, telling a simple story with simple language, and he built his own scenario for it. Scenario for it. The night creature, opening with the blind bug, a blind bug who comes out at night, who is the king of the night creatures and must dance. And this opening theme is an excellent living example of the way that he composed. It starts with him just playing piano solo, the little bit of percussion, then the same music happens played by the reed section with layers of trombones, and then both layers are repeated with added trumpet punctuation. <laughs> The second movement, the stalking monster, and these are his words, the imaginary monster at night. That's what we're all afraid of, but when we find him, we learn that he too likes to dance. Similar technique is the first movement, opening with solo piano, but the monster is evoked by putting the piano in extreme registers. That leads to an epic build featuring woodwinds and brass with strings in a cutting contest back and forth, building until everybody is playing in a great climax from which emerges the solo piano playing the opening theme, this time in close harmonies in the center of the piano in dialogue with Ray Nance's solo violin. Maybe here now we have normalized the monster. 
The third movement, dazzling creature, represents the queen. All night creatures think they will be the star and seek attention, mostly from the queen who reigns over all. Everybody is getting ready for her arrival and vying for her attention. Very quickly, moving on to the suite from the river. 1970, Ellington is now 71 years old. This is a commission from Alvin Ailey and uh, to be choreographed. Alvin Ailey is having a rough time dealing with Duke Ellington's compositional style because Duke is sitting at a piano, going in with his band, sending Alvin Ailey 16 bars of tapes at a time. And Ailey's choreographing things and then getting a new version and having to change everything. And he can't work like this. But he does. So at the end of the time, Duke delivers 12 movements of a suite telling of the river's journey as an allegory for life from a burbling spring up in the top of the mountains all the way down, building more and more momentum, going through rapids, going through whirlpools, going by cities, and ending in the sea. We all start somewhere, we all finish somewhere, and we all have a wild trip along the way. Ailey eventually choreographed only seven because he had a, didn't have enough time. And tonight we are playing four movements from that suite. Um, the spring, like a newborn baby, he's in his cradle, sprouting, spinning, wiggling, gurgling, squirming, making faces, reaching for his bottle, turning, tossing, and tinkling all over the place. The giggling rapids. Duke's imagining a child now. He races and runs and dances and skips and trips all over the backyard until exhausted, he relaxes and rolls down to the lake, which is the next movement. But let's just go ahead and listen to the beginning of this, the child. takes us to the lake, which is beautiful and serene. It is all horizontal lines that offer up unrippled reflections. There it is in all its God-made and untouched glory. Until people come, people who are God-made and terribly touched by the beauty of the lake. They, in their admiration for it, begin to discover new facets of compatibility in each other. And as a romantic viewpoint develops, they indulge themselves. After that, we go to the village of the virgins. One of the twin cities, along with the new hip, hot, cool kitties community, the city across the river, and a movement which Ailey did not choreograph. Um, there are, of course, star-crossed lovers involved in these two different communities across the river from each other, and it all ends predictably when everybody goes down the river and ends in the sea. And emptying, Duke Ellington's vision of the river emptying into the sea represents heavenly anticipation of rebirth. In the full 12-section work, the spring movement from the beginning is reprised at the end, suggesting death and birth as transitional stages in the cycle of life. Thank you so much for coming. I hope you enjoy the concert. I'd love to see you soon. Bye-bye.